Acts chapter 19. Today we conclude our three-part series in Acts chapter 19. We had our first, first message in Acts chapter 19, which I entitled, and this whole series kind of had the longest title in the world, as I mentioned, on week one. Once upon a baptism, magic books ablaze, and then this morning, false gods looking for jobs. That is our title for this morning's message, false gods looking for jobs. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had something happen in your life that got your spiritual attention? Uh, maybe it was, you know, a family member passing away or maybe having a difficult circumstance where, you know, you, you lose your job or you have a health issue or something hits really close to you and you, all of a sudden your spiritual antennas are on. You're like, man, maybe there is something more than just this life. Maybe I better focus on what happens after I breathe my last breath or maybe even, you know, last week as, uh, you know, I gave the disclaimer, we don't talk about spiritual demon possession every single Sunday, but last week, you know, maybe some of you this week were like wide-eyed wherever you went like whoa what's going on in the spiritual realm well I remember when those things happened to me that I shared about last week it kind of supercharged me spiritually it was one of those things where if you were ever feeling you know a little lethargic in your walk with the Lord that that would be the thing that would be like you better kick it in gear so I don't know if you've had something like that, where you have found yourself saying, man, I need to get myself to a place where I am seeking the Lord with all of my heart, where, where I'm, I'm investing in him and spending time in his word. I don't know if you've had something like that, because usually what happens if we have something like that, it kind of dissipates after a while and we kind of wear out. It loses its, you know, uh, the newness factor, so to speak. I'm hoping today that we will understand how important it is for us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And that we, no matter what we've been through, would know that there is more to this life than just the physical. See, what happened in Ephesus here with the Ephesians, the seven sons of Sceva that we read about last week, that incident had a powerful effect on the Ephesians. So much so that their eyes were opened to the demonic realm as opposed to thinking of their superstitious and magical practices as innocent. See, when the Lord touches our hearts, all of a sudden we see a very clear defining line between what is of God and what is not of God. When the Lord changes us, we all of a sudden we have an awareness of the things that are detrimental to us and those things that are expedient or that are helpful to us. What happened in the community that we're reading about here, their eyes were open to the demonic realm. They were open to, to an enemy that they thought didn't exist. And what a powerful enemy that is if he can get you to think that he's not even real. Satan is just that, you know, that, that character, that cartoon character, you know, that sits on your shoulder when you think about doing something bad with his little red pitchfork. You know, it, it's, it's humorous. No, it's not. It's actually very real. And all of a sudden, these people's eyes were open and they changed. Remember, they took all their magic books, their sorcery books, the things that they practiced seances with and witchcraft, and they burned all of those things. And they said, we want nothing to do with that. And when we come to that place of, of, of having that kind of experience with God, we don't think about how can I compromise and get a little bit closer to the things of sin and of this world, do we? Because, unfortunately, that happens a lot in the church today with Christians. It's like, how much can I get away with and have it still be okay? How much can I do and still, you know, retain my, my fire insurance policy, so to speak? You know, because I don't want to be going to hell. So, I mean, how close can I get? But 
When you come to that place where you're like, man, my eyes have been opened. I see what is evil. I see what is righteous. And I want nothing to do with that stuff anymore. Your life radically changes. But not only that, the people's lives around you radically change. And then you extrapolate that out. Society changed. This city has changed. Spurgeon, one of our great spiritual forefathers, said this, and I quote, You will have enough temptation in your own mind, without going after those things. Is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you, and you come and trust in Him, you will make short work of it, have done with it, and have done with it forever. End of quote. Man, is there anything in your life that's like defiling you? Have He says, have done with it. Do away with it. Be free from it. Because there's things in our lives that just latch to ourselves and they, and they latch to us and, and then we carry them around and they defile us. These people were changed. The gospel was spread, as we read last week, throughout all Asia and the word of God was magnified. That's what we want to see, the word of God magnified. God magnified, Him glorified, not us, Him And it says in verse 21, our new text for this morning, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit, or in the spirit rather, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And Paul was on the go and he needed to reach more people with God's word and Rome was where it was at. That's where he needed to be. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Rome. Uh, Rome is actually, surprisingly, was a really dirty place. I had no idea. Uh, just like, not, oh man, like sin dirty? No, like it was just like trash and dirt and all this stuff everywhere. I mean, you saw Sistine Chapel. You know, you go to the Colosseum. You know, you do, you do, you, you, you do all the, the, the sightseeing, you know. It was just really, really, like I was surprised. Rome, contextually, was that center, that hub of the known world. Everyone passed through Rome. Everything that was important happened in that area. It was the center of authority and power. And Paul says, I need to go there. And so in verse 22, he sends now, so he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Now, we know, for those of you that are Bible scholars, which hopefully you will all be if you're not now, uh, we know from Paul's letter to the Romans and also to the Corinthians, uh, that one of the reasons that Paul would be going through Macedonia and going through Ikea was so that he could pick up funds for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, that he could, that he was sending a letter out that says, "Hey, I'm going to come by. We'll receive that financial support, and we're going to take it to the church that's hurting in Jerusalem." And you can read about that in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 16. Timothy and Erastus were great assistants. And I can tell you right now that I've been so blessed to have guys that the Lord has raised up uh, to come alongside and to help. See, these guys were great assistants because they helped Paul in his work. So much so that Paul could do more of what only he could do. They were great guys that he sent ahead of him uh, on his journey. And about that time, verse 23, there arose a great commotion about the way. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, we looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Who remembers the word in Greek for the coming upon? Remember, once upon a baptism, epi, 
Remember in the Greek, the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon us, upon the life of the believer, and how it not only comes upon us. Remember the, the, the empty glass with the pitcher of water, and you pour the water, and it fills it up, and then you keep pouring it so it overflows? That is the overflowing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how it overflows out of our lives, and then it touches the needy world around us. But in light of this, can I ask you a question that I want you to really think about seriously? In light of the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming upon us and overflowing as it's supposed to, let me ask you this question. Are you a container or are you a conduit? Are you a container or are you a conduit? See, some people, even in the church, are just containers of the Holy Spirit. They have no flow out of their lives and they just have inflow. It's only coming in, coming in, coming in, and they contain it. Are you a container or are you a conduit? See, the Lord is changing me. That's great. He's working in my life. He's speaking to me. I'm reading the Bible. And that's inside and it's subjective and that's where it ends. But we shouldn't be complacent in that alone. We need to be that very vessel, that exact word, conduit, that God works through, not only in. That's why we can pray, Lord, have your work in me so that your work can be done through me, not just in me. Then it becomes self-focused, and then we become containment instead of letting it out and spreading it to the world around us. See, this is what was happening in Ephesus. People were not only being radically changed personally, but were personally being used to facilitate a radical change in their culture. So the Lord would change them, and it didn't end there. The Lord would use them. I think so many times, man, we're sitting on the sidelines when we should be in the game. We contain it instead of letting it flow. And because of the fact that the Ephesians, as they were seeking God and as they were not only filled with the Holy Spirit, but baptized with the Holy Spirit, it started to change their culture. It started to change their society. And this caused a problem. This caused a problem. As it says in verse 23, and about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. We see this as the second time that following Jesus was referred to as the way. In verse 24, as we say, okay, is that so? How did a great commotion come about? For a certain man, verse 24, Acts chapter 19, named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines to Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Now, Diana, according to Greek mythology, was the twin sister of Apollo. She was also known as Artemis, and she was the Greek goddess of fertility and sexuality. See, she was this little, I don't mean to be graphic, but we're all adults here, that she was that little multi-breasted goddess, and this wasn't sci-fi. It was the idea that she can nurse multiple children. This is what they worshipped. And and here's Demetrius making multi-breasted statues for a living. I mean, what a living. Uh, What a perv. You know, I don't know. Like, what's going on here? But he calls them together in verse 25 with the workers of similar occupation. And he said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Basically meaning we make our livelihood. We make money off of these little statues that people buy and worship. 
That word there together, you know that we have our prosperity. Prosperity in the Greek, actually, they translate to riches and wealth. They weren't just making a living, but they were making a killing off of these little goddesses that they would sell. Now, now here's the problem. Here's what was going on. This is what caused the commotion. People were turning to the living God through faith in Jesus. People were turning, repenting means going in the the complete opposite direction. They were turning from their sin. They were turning from false gods, and they were seeking the one and only true God. There they are. They're being not only filled with the Holy Spirit, but overfilled with the Holy Spirit. And society is changing. People are having their eyes opened. They can see, oh my goodness, this God has eyes, but it can't see anything. It has ears, but it can't hear one single thing. It has a mouth, but it can't speak. What am I doing bowing down and worshiping that? It's ridiculous. And some of us have had those kind of experiences when we've come to Jesus, put our faith in Jesus, and we think, how in the world did I used to do that? Or, or how about this? Like, how did I used to think that that was okay? I mean, we've all had things like that where it's like, I can't believe I used to be okay with that lifestyle. I can't believe I used to be okay with doing those things. I am changed. What, what, what is it? I mean, it's still the same me, but I'm inside. I'm different. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Your mind has been transformed and renewed because of faith in Jesus. This is what we want to see happening in our city today. That people that are worshiping Buddha no longer worship Buddha. People that, 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 that worship the, the multiplicity of false gods in the Hindu religion. And what am I doing? They would turn to the living God. The one and only true God. People were upset about this. We make money off of these people worshiping these false gods. They came to their senses. All who trust in these false gods are like them. Dumb, blind, and deaf. But wait. Wait. There's people making money off of the people by selling these statues to worship. Now, listen, Diana wasn't just like a little trinket. Like, Diana was a major player in the false god sector, if you could even put it that way. A major player, Diana was. See, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was at the time known as one of the seven wonders of the world. It stood upon... These pillars, 127 of them that were 60 feet high. I mean, it was huge. This was a major, major temple. This temple was actually excavated in 1869. And its main altar was unearthed in 1965. And it was just a tremendous discovery. This was a huge, huge place of worship for a false god. For a god that was not real. So Demetrius is upset about this. In verse 26, he says, Moreover, you see and you hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. I mean, talk about a testimony to Paul's ministry. He's like, this guy Paul, not only here, but everywhere, is telling people, hey, those gods aren't real gods. They're made by somebody. They're not a real god. Now I'm reminded, and it's easy to be reminded of this because I married into a British family, of the Welsh revivals uh, that happened in 1904 in, in Wales. 
And actually, my father and mother-in-law are, are visiting uh, today uh, from Cardiff, and uh, great to have them with us. Uh, Pastor John Vickery, would you please stand so we can welcome you? There he is, my father-in-law right here. Yes. Pastor John uh, could have married into a better family, but has planted churches and pastored for, I think, over 40 years. And the reason why I had him stand up, not only because he's my father-in-law, but because he did the same thing to me at Calvary Golden Springs a long time ago, so I had to repay him back for that. So great to have him uh, with us today. But I'm reminded of the Welsh revivals and, and, and what happened. History tells us of thousands and thousands of people that gave their lives to Jesus and the subsequent effects that led to Bars being shut down because there was no one getting drunk any longer. I mean, Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In the secular newspapers, bars being shut down. The police had nothing to do because no one was getting in fights and crimes weren't being committed. Churches were packed with people hearing the transformational power of God and in some cases in church until three in the morning singing hymns. Some of us are like, man, that's crazy. That's local. Man, that's not, I mean, church, 3 a.m.? This is actually from the South Wales Gazette, 1904. I got this off of bbc.co.uk, but it was really cool. It says, the war, state of trade, Ordinary and extraordinary political topics, even football, it says, have been thrown into the shadow of the great revival. Drunkards have been soberized. Listen to this. Sinful businesses have lost much business. Conduct on public streets have been elevated. It's all quiet for the police. I couldn't believe that. Sinful businesses have lost much business. Look at verse 27 of Acts 19. So he says, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. I mean, this was revolutionary. I mean, drunkards getting soberized. I mean, they use that exact word, soberized. Bars were shutting down. The police had nothing to do because of the work of the Holy Spirit and changing people's lives. This is what was happening in Ephesus. People were just having their eyes open. There is a reason to be alive. There's forgiveness and salvation in Jesus, and he changes. It's not me trying to modify my behavior. It's God changing me on the inside, and then that change makes itself manifest on the outside. And then it was spilling over. It wasn't just the containment, like, man, I'm glad I'm saved, and I'm... Glad I have my sins forgiven and I'm going to heaven. But it started spreading because it was overflowing the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon them. It was changing society. Even the sinful businesses were going out of business. Huh. Wouldn't that be amazing today? So Demetrius says in verse 27 but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Well, can I ask you a question rhetorically? Why would you want to worship a God whose magnificence can be destroyed? Why would you want to worship a God whose magnificence can be destroyed? Now, there's this story in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. You don't need to turn there, but you can if you like. But the, the background of this is that the Philistines, who were enemies of the nation of Israel, captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it into their city. 
And it says, The Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of their god, Dagon, and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and set it in its place again. I mean, can you imagine it? These these Philistines, hurry, hurry up, guys. Be quick about it. Quick, come over here. Quick, give me a hand. Our God has fallen over and he can't get up. Quick, lift him up. I mean, you want to worship a God like that? It goes on to say in verse 4 that when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground again before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Man, why would I want to worship a God that can fall over? Why would I want to worship a God that actually was created by me? I carved it out and I thought of it. And then I'm going to worship it. People's eyes were open. They were changed. Artemis was a major player and she was going out of business. We think of it from a monetary standpoint. Yeah, people making money off of this you know, thing are, are going out of business. But the spiritual side of it, evil was being crushed destroyed people set free the demonic presence remember how we did the armor up series in the first four weeks of uh, of january as we we talked about armoring up and we don't wrestle against you know flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers and how there's spiritual oversight over different areas it was being destroyed That power was being broken by the power of God. See, false gods were looking for jobs because no one was left to worship them. It is the power of Jesus. See, industry changes. Society changes. Sinful businesses go bankrupt by the power of Jesus changing people's lives. Man, no one else on the face of the earth can do that. I think of the sinful things in our world, our country, and even in our own lives that need to go bankrupt, that need to go out of business. Pornography is a $97 billion industry worldwide. $97 billion. $12 billion coming from the USA. That's from NBC News. We see alcohol, $200 billion U.S. only. Man, drugs. Worldwide with trafficking, etc., $4 trillion. Man, we see gambling, $37.5 billion in the U.S. alone. We need to knock over any of these knock-off gods usurping the place of Jesus in our lives. Even as Dagon was knocked over by the power of God, we in our own personal lives need to knock over any of these knockoff gods. They're not the real God. They're not the God of the universe, the one who created all things, who breathed breath into our lives. We need to get rid of those things and do it quickly. We need to be set free. So not only is this trait of ours in danger, he says, falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and this world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath. Rightfully so. I'm losing money, and my false god's not worth anything anymore. And they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! 
So the whole city, it says, was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. There's this huge riot, you know, the angry mob. And they're all in this theater. And Paul's like, hey, let me in, let me in, let me in. I'll tell them, I'll tell them. They're like, no, 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 no. Not a good chance, not a good time right now to go into that place. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He was like, get me in front of as many non-Christians that I can, and I'll preach the gospel to them. As he said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for all the world, for the whole world. That's the same kind of mentality that we need to have, not being Christians incognito. I feel like we do that way too often. I've been guilty of that in my past, and I don't want to ever be guilty of that again. Oh, don't ask me what I do on Sunday mornings. Oh, come on. No, 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 no. You know, and you know the type of people that you're hanging out with that if they would know that you're a Christian or that you were following Jesus, they may not want anything to do with you. And so you kind of keep it on the chill tip. You keep it low key. Paul wasn't that way. We shouldn't be that way. We're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save people. And then some of the officials in verse 31 of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. The angry mob gathering together, not knowing why they were even there. I mean, if you remember the riots in L.A. most recently, you know, the news channels, like interviewing people there in downtown, you know, and hey, so, so why are you out there? And you remember, you know, the, the, the group of people are like, I don't know. I just saw a bunch of people that were walking. I'm like, whoa, you know, let's set some things on fire. You know, that's great. And like, what, what's going on here? The mob mentality, misdirection, confusion has the work of Satan all over it. You know, I don't even know why I'm here, but we're all yelling and this is great. And then afterwards, you're like, why am I here again? And it says they drew Alexander, verse 33, out of the multitude and the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, remember, this is Greeks and Jews, the Ephesians, and then, oh, Jew, what do you know? You worship the, 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 the God that Paul's you know, talking about. All with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. You know, like that kind of thing. You can picture it, stadium-esque. And when the city clerk, verse 35, quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Man, this is a major thing that's happening. Everybody knows of Diana. Remember, otherwise known as Artemis, that huge temple. The the clerk gets up and he says, Everybody knows about this city and what we stand for. Therefore, verse 6, since these, uh, excuse me, 36, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Period. Paul was not, it's important to note, was not on a shut down the temple crusade, picketing the temple. Shut down. Close the doors. You know, he just preached the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do the work of changing people's lives. It's unfortunate, but our church as a whole is too often the case 
that we treat the symptoms of sin rather than the root cause of the symptom. We, 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 and that's why you get this thing called, well, the church is no, no more for what they're against than what they're for. And see, the, the misnomer there is that we will attack the symptoms of sin, but never get to the root cause, which is sin and separation of man from God. And then at that point, people will say the church is against this and the church is against this. And don't get me wrong. We know where we stand and it hopefully should be upon what the Bible says. It better be upon what the Bible says. But see, when we do not get to the issue, which is man's heart is sinful, it becomes behavior modification. It becomes be more moral, be a better person. And that person who is trying to be more moral moral or, or modifying their behavior can still die in their sins. The issue is sin. Paul preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. And then the people responded and the Holy Spirit did the work in their hearts and then it overflowed into society. See, the cure is Jesus. The cure is Jesus. And so the city clerk goes on in verse 38. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen, and by the way, Paul didn't break any laws and wasn't doing anything that would give himself a bad reputation. But he says, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Verse 39. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger, it says in verse 40, of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, as a Christian in this world, it can almost feel like David and Goliath, really. You can feel like you're outnumbered, you know, you know outmanned outgunned, so to speak. Almost like it's the David versus Goliath, man. Like the world's resources and then the media and all these different news channels and then the Hollywood and then all these things. Well, it can seem that we are outgunned and outnumbered, but I'm reminded of what David said to Goliath regarding that subject. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, young David said, in the presence of both opposing armies, the nation of Israel and the Philistines, he said, Then all this assembly, everyone that is gathered, shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. We don't want to take it upon ourselves. Let me fight that battle. Even though we're involved with the work of the Lord, we want the Lord to go before us. Lord, you lead the way, I'll follow. The battle belongs to the Lord. So even if you feel like, man, this is just like a huge task. I am overwhelmed. This is too much for me. Well, you know what? That's a great, great understanding to have because that's the Lord's battle and he wins it. So now here was Paul in Ephesus, a very pagan, evil land with a temple that, as I mentioned, was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. Do you think he might have felt overwhelmed? Maybe a bit. Walking in, listen, there weren't churches and like, wow, Christians, and there's churches all over the place, and it's Orange County, and it's California. No, it's like into a new place, telling them about Jesus. With 127 columns that are 60 feet high, and everybody worshiping these false gods. Do you think he felt a little bit intimidated by that? Maybe a bit? I think he could, but what did he do? He preached the gospel, and the Lord compounded it and brought the increase. 
And may it be so. Lord, please, Lord, may it be so even here with us today.